Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. Afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KLX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rock. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in the world of science. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Y.T. Lee, who will be discussing scientific solutions to environmental problems. And we'll also find out how the Fahrenheit scale was created. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous Question of the Week, coming right up here on Berkeley Rocks. Back to Berkeley Rocks, I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Not too bad. And how about you, Charles? I think I'm doing all right. Uh, last time I checked, but might not have a pulse today. Oh, but do you have an extra arm or something? I'm hoping to grow an extra arm. But really? But we're going to have an extra person for today's <laughs> show, right? Oddly enough, we did grow an extra person, which rarely happens wow. here. Wow, asexual reproduction works. <laughs> yeah, usually they're just chairs. Uh, today we happen to have Dr. Gordon Campbell from the Nye Lab here at UC Berkeley. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, so is this a Bill Nye's lab, the, the science Nye. guy? <laughs> that would be a fun lab to work. In, Bill Nye's lab. <laughs> so, what do they do in the uh, Nye lab? Well, my project involves working with microarrays. They can be a number of different platforms, but the ones that I'm using now are microscope slides that are covered with tiny dots of DNA, actually 20,000 wow. different spots of DNA. So, these are little slides that are coated with DNA from some particular tissue or something? Yeah, they can be from any type of tissue. This okay. is from a particular cDNA clone set that is supposed to be fairly representative of the mouse genome. So, these are basically all of the DNA that you might expect in the mouse. Or a fairly complete. So has the mouse genome been sequenced yet? Yeah, it's been sequenced, but it's not very well annotated at the moment, so it's still in a pretty rough phase. So Still a burn field where a <laughs> <laughs> scientist may sow his wheat. That's right. Yeah. yeah, there's work to be done still. So what are you doing with these particular microarrays? Well, so my project involves looking to see how the cortex is regulated, the gene expression profiles during the development of the cerebral cortex in the mouse. And basically what happens is you have a set of neural stem cells that differentiate into the cerebral cortex, which is actually the most complicated piece of tissue on the planet. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine that there's a very complicated set of genetic program transcriptional regulation that has to go on to go from simple stem cell layer to getting the differentiated cerebral cortex, which involves producing six-layer brain. So basically all these different genes then have to turn on and off in certain regulated fashion. Right. right? Yeah. So then I'm actually doing a time course of gene expression.
expression during the production of the different layers of the brain. So I'm going from when the first layers start until when the animal is born, which is when layer formation terminates in the brain. Okay, animals at different stages of their development and looking at what genes are on and off. Yeah, looking at what genes are on and off and doing statistical analysis of that information and finding genes that are correlated with each other oh, and then looking for a particular pattern. Then the goal will be to associate those genes with different cell types and try to determine what genes are important for this process to happen. So is there a particular reason why you're using mouse as your model here? Because the genome is relatively well annotated compared to other vertebrate organisms. Mm. So that's the main reason. Okay. Well, so have you found out any cool things about this developmental process yet? Well, I've just finished my first set of arrays. So I'm in the process of just going through and looking at stuff. So maybe in a <laughs> month or so, I'll have something more to say about how this process okay. is genetically. Well, I think we'll have to have the monthly update yeah. and <laughs> see what is going on. Right. Oh, so we look forward to hearing more from you then. Yeah, well, anytime. Well, thank you for dropping by at the Grok Studio. Yeah, well, thank you. So speaking of genetics, did you know papayas have a maleness to them? Papayas have a maleness? Yeah, apparently they've uh, identified the first gene, so-called Y chromosome, for the papaya family. See, I always thought papayas were a more of a sexy female fruit. In fact, it turns out there's three types of papaya fruits, the Ooh. hermaphrodite, the female, and the male. And the hermaphrodite... I like to be the hermaphrodite, because you get the best of both worlds. They have the sweetest fruit and the most productive. Ooh. And the second best is the females, which are uh, fairly good in productivity and not as sweet. And the males, unfortunately, they're not desired and they're not so common <laughs> so you can find out by the fruits that come out unfortunately you can't tell directly from the seeds but researcher Ray Ming at the Hawaiian Agriculture Research Institute figured out that you can find the genes and that's the first evidence that there's a maleness to the plant family we normally cannot observe before this is a sort of a novel thing in the plant family have they not discovered this kind of sexual it's actually quite unusual oh wow think about that the next time you're eating your papaya <laughs> <laughs> and if anyone wants to know more they can go to last week's issue of the LA Times All right, well, this story isn't nearly as sexy as that last one, but rather involves antifreeze. Antifreeze keeps you warm on those chilly nights, right? In fact, it also seems to keep clouds quite warm really? on chilly nights. So it turns out that cirrus clouds, which are those high-altitude clouds that form right. these thin wisps... Those are actually ice crystals floating in the air, right? Right, well, that, but the interesting finding now is that very cold ice clouds appear to be more vapor than ice crystals. Really? And in fact, they are composed of more vapor than previously been thought. Uh-huh. So this puts a kink into current climate models that reflect how these clouds are actually reflecting sunlight and keeping heat in. Right. The interesting thing about it is that researchers collected samples. Mm -hmm. They found that certain types of clouds colder than minus 71 degrees Celsius actually are composed of more vapor, and it turns out that nitric acid might be acting as an antifreeze preventing water from actually condensing into ice crystals. Is this nitric acid from the pollutant? They think perhaps some of it might be coming from human pollution, but there's other sources like bacteria and even lightning can form it. Oh, I see. So Stephen Wood, a planetary scientist at the University of Washington in Seattle, says it's certainly very exciting, but climate models will certainly have to take notice, and this was work that was carried carried out by David Faley, an atmospheric scientist at National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in Boulder, Colorado, and published in the 23rd January issue of Science. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, Professor Y.T. Lee will join us to discuss scientific solutions to environmental problems. So stay tuned.
Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks. Well, the concerns of the environment do not lie solely with environmentalists and policymakers, but also from uh, dedicated scientists. In fact, some of our, our understanding of the environment can be traced back to studies that were carried out more than 30 years ago. Well, joining us today is a very special guest, uh, Professor Y.T. Lee from Taiwan, to talk about the chemistry of the environment and his concerns. Uh, Professor Lee was previously on the UC Berkeley faculty in the Department of Chemistry, and in 1986, he received a Nobel Prize in Chemistry for his studies on the dynamics of chemical processes. In 1994, Professor Lee left Berkeley for Taipei, where he's now the president of Academia Sinica, the highest academic institution in Taiwan. Professor Lee, welcome back to Berkeley, and thank you for joining us on Berkeley Rocks today. Well, my pleasure. First of all, I would just like to say that uh, I admire you very much for what you've done, both as a scientist and educator. I understand these days you're interested in creating a sustainable society, uh, one in which resources are used without harm to the environment or to people. When we talk about our atmosphere, there are two main issues that dominate. The, the ozone depletion caused by release of refrigerants like uh, chlorofluorocarbons and global warming due to uh, increasing greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide. Well, with regard to the ozone layer, how are chemicals exactly depleting it? About 30 years ago, one of the faculty members at Berkeley, Harold Johnston, did worry about nitric oxide. But nitric oxide turned out to be not such a harmful gas on the other end, chlorofluorocarbon, especially when it's associated in producing chlorine atom, or induced chlorine cycle, which has been responsible for destroying ozone layers. Uh, around that time, in the 70s, National Academy of Sciences organized a committee and looked at the problem of ozone layer destruction. Mm -hmm. And once they concluded fluorochlorocarbon is the culprit, we instituted a policy to ban the use of chlorofluorocarbon. And that has been quite effective in a sense that the ozone destruction, although it's still taking place, it's not accelerating, it's leveling off. Mm -hmm. So there's a chance in the next 20 years, maybe the problem of fluorochlorocarbon might disappear right. eventually. Yeah, I think some recent studies suggest that the, the rate of destruction is slowing down. Mm -hmm. and some people are optimistic that the layer will be healed by, say, 2050. Are you also as, as optimistic? Yes, if we really limit the usage of chlorofluorocarbon, then I will be very optimistic. But I have to say that there are still many countries producing large quantities of fluorochlorocarbon. So... Major industrialized countries are not using it anymore, but developing countries are still using it, so that also has to be stopped. Some alternatives have emerged for these uh, CFCs, uh, mm -hmm. but they're not completely benign. Can you explain this a little bit? Well, people try to replace one of the fluorine into hydrogen, mm -hmm. so it will decompose by eliminating hydrogen chloride and hydrogen fluoride. Right. So those are, are certainly much better than fluorochlorocarbon, but not completely benign. Well, in 1987, the, uh, the Montreal Protocol was adopted to uh, limit the use of these uh, ozone-destroying compounds. Um, do you feel that this protocol has been successful and, you know, should it be modified in any way? I think so. The protocol has been quite successful. Right. Without the protocol, we will be in a much worse situation at the present time. Uh-huh. Uh, what about global warming? Can you describe how the, the greenhouse effects causes the, uh, the climate change? Yes. As you know, the carbon dioxide or methane and fluorochlorocarbon will not absorb visible photons. It would absorb infrared photons. So when the sun irradiates on the surface of the Earth, 
visible photon will penetrate through, but the radiation from the surface of this, the Earth, which is typically 68 degrees Fahrenheit, those emit infrared photons will be absorbed by, by the carbon dioxide, fluorocarbon, or methane. Or methane. Okay. And so heat is trapped by the atmosphere. I see. And it will not escape as efficiently. So you, when the carbon dioxide concentration were to increase, mm-hmm. then surface of the Earth start to warm up considerably. So clearly these greenhouse gases are linked to our dependence on fossil fuels. Um, there's been a lot of talk about developing and implementing renewable um, energy resources like wind, uh, photovoltaics, and uh, uh, geothermal power, but so far um, they're very limited in terms of their adoption. Uh, wh- what do you think needs to be done uh, technology-wise or policy-wise? Well, as you know, the solar energy uh, is enormous in mm-hmm. an hour. Sun is transmitting to the surface of the Earth about the amount of energy we use in the entire year by human society. It means only takes an hour. The entire Earth is receiving the amount of energy, which is equivalent to, to the energy we use in the entire year. So if we were to be a little more clever uh, and learn how to use solar energy more efficiently, mm-hmm. then we are going to go a long way and without depending on the combustion of fossil fuel. That's the one produce carbon dioxide. And actually, during the last year, or during the last 18 months, there has been significant advances in the photovoltaic cell. In fact, the silicon-based multi-layer component, the efficiency of converting the solar energy into electricity could be up to 35%, like those has been done by our fuel of in Russia. Oh, I see. But it turned out to be very, very expensive to make those silicon-based photovoltaic cells. So what our fuel of has been doing is using solar collector reflected light onto the small uh, photovoltaic cell made out of silicon. But that's very expensive, and once you invest the money, right. it takes more than 15 years to recover it. Mm-hmm. And so economically, not very efficient, not very feasible. Yeah. On the other hand, during the last year, during the last 18 months, there's a method using nanotechnology and use titanium oxide as a base, die-coat it, uh-huh. die-sensitize. So there's a device called Disensitized Photovoltaic Cell, and that was uh, invented by Gretzel in Switzerland. And oh, the evi- yeah, efficiency could go up to about 10%, and yes. it's a lot cheaper to, to, to make those photovoltaic cells. So it looks like we are in, in, in the eve of going to have something new. Okay. There's been a lot of discussion about the, the hydrogen fuel economy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and also using uh, fuel cells to store this hydrogen. Right. Um, how efficient and economical do you believe this is? You see, when we talk about hydrogen economy, it is a means to store the energy because when you have a photovoltaic cell, the electricity could be stored in battery or spread the water into hydrogen and oxygen. Right. Or even if you run high-temperature um, breather reactor, the energy could be used to spread the water. Right. So sooner or later, we will be using hydrogen as our fuel. Mm-hmm. So when we said we move into the hydro economy, is when we stop using hydrocarbon, fossil okay. fuel. Then, no matter how you collect the energy, uh, either nuclear or solar energy, probably the way to store energy will be in the form of hydrogen and oxygen. So using hydrogen to generate electricity, the fuel cell certainly is the most efficient one. So I do see that the, in the next 20, 30 years, we will move into hydro economy. It means... Mm-hmm. So far as we learn to use renewable energy, and the renewable energy mainly will come from sun, right. and hydrogen will become important player. I see. Um, the Kyoto Protocol was developed 
to uh, to limit these greenhouse gases, but mm-hmm. there hasn't been a lot of enthusiasm about it. Uh, do you see it as a failure or just a bump in the road? Well, I think it's a bump in the road. One of the reasons is many countries, for example, United States, you see, we often said 20th century is the century of the United States, mm-hmm. but actually the 20th century is the century of the combustion of petroleum or the, the century of the petroleum industry. Right. In United States, has the society, the entire society, developed by depending on the combustion of fossil fuel, and one cannot change as easily. So, so U.S. or car producer like Korea or even Russia mm-hmm. will not sign the Kyoto Protocol. So it's kind of sad that the uh, global warming trend is continuing. Do you see any hope of reviving this protocol, or should it be come in a different form, perhaps? Well, during the last 10 years, scientists is more and more convinced that the global warming is really real mm-hmm. and going to bring lots of damage to, to the global environment. So the menace is there and people start to be aware, aware of it. You cannot neglect it anymore. So in this sense, every country will face global warming trend more seriously. Right. And at the same time, the research will be done on creating renewable energy by wind power or maybe even the fusion. Okay. Uh, we already said that the fusion will come along during the next 30 years. 30, 40 years ago, we've been saying that. But improvements have been made during the last 10 years also. I see. And the U.S. is going to join the international collaboration that will include all the European countries, Japan, and the U.S. to set up a fusion reactor and try to show maybe one day uh-huh. it will become a practical source of energy. So there's certainly many countries involved in these efforts right now. Uh, what has Taiwan been doing in this regard? Well, the current government, um, DPP, has been much more sensitive toward the environment. So uh, government has been pushing for renewable energy or in the photovoltaic cell or um, biomass or wind power. Effort is now become substantial. On the other hand, the frictional energy we are using so-called renewable mm-hmm. is still, still very small. So still has a way to go. On a global scale, the, the population is still increasing and certainly the demand for energy is also rising. For example, China, where the economic growth has been consuming exponentially more electricity and fuel each year, you know, some people even feel that this could be a source of conflict in the future. Do you have any recommendations for their development? Well, if you look back the history of mankind, I would say the way human society developed during the 20th century, there's no future for us if we continue to go that way. You see, the Western society has been uh, moving up and improving the living condition by using enormous amount of energy and natural resources. But the Earth is limited. It's a finite Earth in terms of providing natural resources or absorbing the waste we generate. So I remember 25 years ago when I was first visiting men in China, I tried to remind them one should not imitate the way Western society developed because there's no future. Mm-hmm. for the entire world. We have to find a much more efficient way to live. But unfortunately, if you look at the, the way Southeast Asia is developing, or imitating the, the way U.S. has developed, using enormous amount of energy and natural resources, and we have to wake up. That's not the way to go. You're well known for being an optimist and seeing the potential for science to change the world for the better. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you still feel hopeful science and technology can offer these promises as they did, say, 20 years ago or 50 years ago? Oh, certainly. Not all the programs are scientific programs, mm-hmm. but the, the large fraction of programs we are facing today 
a science in nature. Mm-hmm. Although the current scientific knowledge and technology cannot solve all the problems we are facing today. On the other hand, if we keep on doing research, accumulate new knowledge, I do believe that large fraction of those problems will be solved. That's why we are enormously enthusiastic about carrying out good research and educate young generation of scientists mm-hmm. so they can move many steps further. Are there any current developments that inspire you? Well, as, as I said, the photovoltaic cell, the development of the photovoltaic cell gave me a new perspective of how the energy problem could be solved. One of the faculty members in the Department of Chemistry here at Berkeley, Paul Arivisado, is also using nanotechnology. Right. Using zinc selenide and, and those are embedded in polymers. Yes. And the efficiency is not that high, up to maybe 5 to 7%. And he is working together with a company in Japan, try to mass produce uh, much more uh, economically. And those developments certainly will come, will, will bring us to a new step. I guess I got a couple of last questions here, mm-hmm. uh, specifically about your experience at Berkeley. Looking back at the years you were here, what accomplishments are you most proud of? Are there some stories you'd like to share with us? Well, when I came to Berkeley, uh, one thing which really uh, got me excited was that uh, when I was in Taiwan, very often one cannot do <coughs> the thing you wanted to do, maybe because of the resource available or um, not enough people to discuss problem with. But after I came to Berkeley, I started to feel that uh, nothing is impossible in America or nothing is impossible in California or Mm -hmm. at Berkeley. So that gave me a great enthusiasm and excitement. And it is your own effort which will allow you to attain something great scientifically. If you work hard, you might be able to do something nobody's been able to do. So when I came to Berkeley in 1962, that was the time people tried to visualize how chemical reaction takes place. Mm-hmm. One cannot see atoms and molecules with a naked eye. So devising different methods to see how can we understand how chemical reaction takes place. So I was enormously excited and I jumped into the field. And after I got my degree in 1965, I started to work on ion molecules getting in apparatus and try to visualize how chemical reaction takes place from the measurement of velocity and angular distributions. So those are really critical period of my scientific career. I learned a great deal here. I learned how to solve the problem and learned many technical aspects of carrying out difficult experiments. I guess we're running a little bit out of time today. Uh, are there any last words you'd like to add about your work, Academia Sinica, or your hopes for the future? Well, 10 years ago, I went back to Taiwan. Not because Taiwan is a wonderful place. They needed my help, so I went back. And during the last 10 years, Academia Sinica became a very respectable scientific organization. I'm very happy that I have been able to help them. But I still like Berkeley, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, Professor Lee, uh, I want to thank you for your time. Thanks for joining us on Berkeley Box today. Well, my pleasure. And we were just talking to Professor Y.T. Lee, the president of Academia Sinica from Taiwan. This is Berkeley Gross you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, we'll find out how a pressure gauge works. So stay tuned.
to Berkeley Grox. On this week's Everyday Science, we're going to find out how a pressure gauge works. Ever wonder how a pressure gauge knows how much air is in your tires? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. To gauge just how this little device works, let's make like atoms of air and flow into this bicycle tire. Feel that? The more air that gets pumped into this closed space, the more we atoms are forced together. This close contact has us literally pushing against one another and up against the inner lining of the tire. That's air pressure. But it won't last forever. Hitting the road frequently can slowly force some of the air out of small stress cracks or punctures in the tires and through the seal between the tire and the metal rim. Cooler temperatures can also decrease pressure by slowing down the movement of the atoms inside the tire. And if somebody wants to check how much pressure is left, the pressure gauge comes in very handy. The gauge is basically a slender metal tube with a valve at one end that attaches to the tire's outer stem. Inside, there's a spring-loaded piston connected to a metal rod, which is what takes the reading. Here we go. Some of the air molecules inside the tire, that's us, rush into the gauge with the same pressure at which we bounced around inside the tire. This rush of air pushes the piston, which in turn moves the rod. When the gauge is removed from the tire, the rod stays where it is, measuring how much pressure is inside the tire. Hope we got you pumped up about today's show. Thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, Making Science Make Sense. Now I know what's leaking my tires. And now here's Professor Einstein with the answer to last week's question of the week. Yeah, that's correct. And I have the answer to last week's question of the week, which was, so, you know, the, the Celsius scale, it was the zero and the hundreds, it's the freezing temperature of water and the boiling point of water, but the Fahrenheit scale is very odd. It has these zero and the hundred marks, which are very, very strange. How does these marks come about? Well, the interesting story is Fahrenheit, he goes outside and he, he puts his uh, thermometer outside, it was very cold that day, and that would be marks zero degrees. And then he uh, go, went inside and he has his grandmother, and he puts the thermometer in her mouth, and that's supposed to be the body temperature of humans, and 100 degrees was the thing, but interestingly enough, it's apparently she had the fever that day, because the normal body temperature is 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, and that's how the scales were formed on the Fahrenheit scale. Okay, and now Tokyo Kids back with this week's question of the week. What is a solar flare? If you know the answer, or just think you know the answer, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. Uh, you won't win anything, but you might just avoid that suntan. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Rocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Rocks, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Rocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie.